just give the lion and the lamb praise today. Let's stand together. Lord, we pray that we would fervently worship you in spirit and in truth. And uh, Lord, we would walk away from this place changed into a little bit more in the likeness of Christ than when we came. Because we've worshipped, because we've studied your word, and because we've been transformed. And we just give you praise and glory and honor today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. Hey, uh, please take out one of these connection cards. And uh, if you're worshiping with us, uh, maybe the first or second time, maybe you're here. And we would love to have a record of your attendance, okay? And uh, 
and also on the back there, there's an opportunity to put prayer requests, comments. Uh, also, the, the, the bottom of the, the back, if you want more information about the church or you want information about beginning a relationship with Christ, we'd be happy to reach out to you and tell you more, okay? So please fill that out. Put that in the offering plate uh, on your way out, okay? Um, by the way, it was very strategic today that we started with a song that repeated this question, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Because it gave every Christian an opportunity to just resoundingly say, nobody, nothing. Amen? Because we are, we're talking about spiritual warfare today. It's important to know that there is an adversary that is serious about our defeat. But he has no opportunity if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Amen? And that's exactly what the Reformer 500 years ago wrote. And as we, uh, as we sing this Martin Luther song, uh, study the text as you go. Don't just, don't just sing it because, oh yeah, I think I've heard these words before, da-da-da-da-da, I'm just singing along. Study the text as you go because there is so much rich doctrine about what Luther felt and, and knew about the, the prince and power of this world, the devil, but he also knew that he was a defeated foe. Amen? And so let's, uh, let's sing this together. Yeah. 
you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 12? Now, we're not going to read this right now, but we're going to get to it. What I want you to realize is that oftentimes when we sing uh, up here, we are obviously we're always singing about concepts of what Scripture says. But in this particular instance, we are singing the Scripture, and I want you to see it uh, as we come to that. Revelation 12, and I'll be around verse uh, 10 when we get there. Let's sing together. in heaven saying now is the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives unto death let's sing those words we have overcome by the blood
warfare song. Let's sing it together. God of angel armies. You hear me when I call. You are my morning song. Though darkness fills the night, I cannot hide the light. Who shall I fear? You crush the enemy. sword and shield, though troubles linger still, who shall I fear? I know who goes before me, I know who stands behind, the God of angel armies is always by my side, the one who reigns forever, he is a friend of of us out there today, maybe like the servant of Elisha, needs to have our spiritual eyes open and see that there is a heavenly host around us, going before us, behind us, protecting, guiding, defending. Lord, I pray as we talk about spiritual warfare today that we will see that the God of angel armies goes before us, defending us, protecting us. Lord, help us to cling to Him. It's in Christ's name we pray.
Any of you dads ever wrestle with your kids? Some of you older guys are saying, what are you talking about, preacher? That's a long time ago. Well, you know, you think about wrestling with your kids. They love beating up on their father. They will continue to do this for several minutes, sometimes 15, 20, 30 minutes, and all of a sudden the tide turns. And the old man suddenly experiences a surge of energy, and he just flexes and overthrows all the attackers. And then you hear, Dad, let us up. We give. It's a cry of consternation. Let's play something else. They just, they feel the wrath of the old man, right? Well, I want to remind you that that's a, an analogy of a real spiritual reality when it comes to our divine warrior. The enemy has no chance. The attackers have no chance when it comes to the exalted Son of God. And so it is Daniel that has been praying for 21 days. Some of us think, I can't even remember a time when I consecutively prayed for 21 days. Isn't that a shame? But Daniel is doing that. He's interceding and he's praying because of the people and their plight and their exile. And at the same time, He's praying, God gives him a vision of the exalted Son of God. And we're not going to read all the text again, but that's Daniel 10, verses 5 through 10, when he sees the Son of God. Looks so much like Revelation 1.13. We talked about that. The exalted Son of God, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who holds the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And so... It was very important for Daniel to get this understanding of the Son of God being exalted above all things and the fact that he will win the victory. And so Daniel is praying. And remember we talked about the fact that prayer is never a futile effort or event. It's never a meaningless effort. We have no idea why God doesn't answer prayer immediately. But we know that God knows why. And that has to be good enough for us. But in Daniel 10, Jesus appears in power and glory. He's exalted. He's the Son of God. And then Daniel needs to understand a coming vision that he's going to give us in chapter 11 and 12. And so the spiritual warfare element comes in, right? Daniel's praying, but he has no idea of the spiritual warfare going on in the heavenlies. And as he's praying... When you get to the end of chapter 10, you find, or middle of chapter 10, you find out that the the answer has been delayed because the angels are fighting against demonic principalities and and high places because it calls the individual the prince of Persia and then later calls the prince of Greece also a demonic force. And understand, verse 10, there is a great, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, there is a great conflict. So those things have to be brought into your mind today. We're going to break it down in two ways. One, one, we need to be mindful of the reality of spiritual warfare. Great conflict going on, chapter 10, verse 1. Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, all that is to tell you that there's more happening in this world than meets the eye. You've got to be mindful of the spiritual warfare going on in this world. And then, of course, the most important thing, is to trust the exalted Son of God to sustain you and to strengthen you. And that's exactly what this text is about. So first, be mindful of the reality of spiritual warfare. Let's pick up in verse 15. Remember 14, And came to me, came to make you understand, the angel came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now verse 15, When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Again, think about the condition of Daniel as he sees the exalted Son of God slash angelic forces, depending on your interpretation of what's going on here. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord... O my Adonai, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? I mean, how can I even begin a conversation with the exalted Son of God? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. 
Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? And before Daniel could even give an answer, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This doesn't end at the section. It really ends in 11.1. You do understand there are no paragraph breaks in Hebrew, right? So uh, translators supply them, but the end is chapter 11, verse 1. And as for me... This is the angel speaking. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. What's another name for Darius? Cyrus, right? The great. Okay. I hope you track with the text. Okay. Be mindful of the warfare. Again, verse 1, great conflict. And then quickly we realize that the prince of Persia is not a human ruler, but the demonic power that actually stands behind Persia. Now, in verse 14, Daniel's prepared to respond And up to this point, he's been on his face. Remember? Chapter 10, uh, verse 9. I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. There's this tumult. There's this sound of many waters. And Daniel's on his face before the Son of God, and he's absolutely speechless. And then verse 16. Daniel's lips are touched. In other words, think about the progression. Reverential awe and respect to the one you see, the Son of God. All reverence on your face before God. And then there's this commissioning that needs to take place in Daniel's life. In order for him to be able to understand the vision and to give the vision to the people, there's a commissioning, right? But there also has to be a purging. Uh, You have to be a fit. You have to be ready for the actual message to take the message out. And what does this sound like? Sounds like Isaiah. I saw it on Eric's lips. Isaiah 6, we know that uh, he sees the throne room of God. And Isaiah sees the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. Trebling of the most important attribute of God, that he is holy. You are Lord God Almighty. And then the Bible says the whole earth was filled with the glory of the Lord. And the angels were singing in the room as it was filled with smoke and the very foundations of the temple began to shake. The only thing Isaiah can say or that can come out of his mouth is what? Woe is me. And woe is actually an oracle of doom. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the Lord. What does Isaiah really ask for? I'm doomed. Doomed. I am undone. And then the Bible says one of the angels takes a hot coal from the altar with tongs and takes it and touches Isaiah's lips. So God does this. He cleanses Isaiah, commissions him. So just as Isaiah saw the Lord highly exalted and lifted up and an angel touches his lips, we get the same kind of understanding with Daniel here. He's a servant of the Lord. He's face down. He's speechless. Think about this old man. He's in his 80s. He's been so faithful. We've studied all the way from chapter 1 when he was a teenage boy. And he's loved the Lord and he's served the Lord God for nearly a century. And he's faithful. He has an intimate walk with God. And yet when he sees the Son of God, he is absolutely overwhelmed. And we should be too. When we look at the Scripture and we read about the exhausted Son of God, we should all be overwhelmed at who he is and his person And the angel reaches down, touches his lips, consecrates him for service, gives him a message. I want to remind you that it's always an efficacious touch when God touches us. It's always effectual. It will accomplish his purpose. He touched him. He opened his mouth. And what does Daniel say? Oh, my Lord, Adoniah. Now, he he probably doesn't need to explain to the Lord what his condition is, but he is doing that. As a result of the manifestation of the Son of God, he is, he's in anguish. No strength is in him. In verse 13, 17, he basically says, How can a person like me talk to a person like you? The power of the Word has taken his breath away. 
That's what the text says. He's been called, highly favored, highly valued by God, yet in the presence of the Son of God, there's absolute humility and fear and reverential awe at who he sees. Now, is the grace of God not amazing here? There's not an occasion in the Bible where God appears when man doesn't feel incredibly small. Just think about that. Now, that's not the way that we put it out there in this world today. We, we put our God out as a manageable deity, don't we? But that's not the way the Bible presents him. This is the constant pattern in the Bible when someone encounters God. Uh, they don't feel so big, right? They feel and appear very, very small. Yet in the midst of all that majesty and all that power and all that glory, there is amazing grace and tenderness. Is it not marvelous grace that God would even touch us at all? So for Daniel, that's what he does. Do you remember Luke chapter 5? When the disciples, they had been fishing all night. Jesus is just standing over there on the seashore. And they return, and they're mending their nets. And the Lord Jesus Christ begins to speak to them concerning their catch. And what does Peter say? Kneel. We've caught nothing. And what does Jesus say? I want you to press back out into the water. Throw your net on the other side. Now, don't you think that Peter, old gruff fisherman like he is, would say, you're a rabbi, but you're not a fisherman. But nevertheless, Peter has learned, at thy word, I'm going to do what you said. And the Bible says that they cast a net on the other side. And whew, they have to have help. I, I've all, I've, I love to fish, and I, I would love to have this happen to me just one time, right? <laughs> just throw my rod on the other side and just never cease to catch as many fish as I possibly can get in. But what happens when the Lord, when they come to the shore with that great catch? Peter says, depart from me, son of God, for I am a sinful man. That's the response we should have to the Lord of glory, right? And that was the response. So the son of God touches him again and restores his strength. And in verse 19, again, so much grace. Daniel had one, had one understanding and response to his sinful condition before God. And yet God sees him through grace. Daniel knows he is a sinful person. He's down before the Lord. Yet God sees him. The Son of God sees him through grace. I want to remind you today, here's an application. If you are in Christ Jesus the Lord, when God sees you, he sees the blood and righteousness and perfect obedience of the Son of God. Given to your account. That ought to be freeing for all of us. Uh, when I look in the mirror, it's not that appealing. And the same is true for you, right? But when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of righteousness because of the Son of God. What an amazing understanding of the Word of God. Then he says, don't be afraid. He then says some words that should be familiar to all of us. Shalom. Peace be with you. When God encounters mankind, he must always say, don't be afraid, right? Just think about all the other places in the Word of God. Now, have you ever heard these words in your own life? Peace with you. Once freed from his fear and trembling, Daniel now needs shalom. He needs the peace of Christ. Once he understands he shouldn't fear. Is it any wonder that Jesus will tell his disciples over and over again, do not be afraid and peace be with you. So in the absence of fear, it needs to be replaced with the peace of God. Is, that, is there any correlation between our times in this pandemic and these words, right? No fear, but absolute peace. Why? Because the Son of God is in control. What can a disease do to us? For me to live as, say it, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. So perfect love casts out all fear. So in the absence of that fear, it needs to be replaced with the peace of God. We are at peace with God, and everything is okay. The actual rendering, peace be with you, and so with you. Peace be with you, the Son of God, so you have peace now in you. What happens when the Son of God himself says, peace be with you? Folks, that's not just rote. That's not just ritual. When he says this, it's effective. It's effective in your life. Christ speaks his peace to Daniel, and Daniel is actually filled with the shalom of God. The exact thing that's happened to you when you were justified by grace through faith. 
Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's your position. That's the peace that you have. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Daniel is then told to take courage and be courageous. We dealt with this a few weeks ago when we talked about Christian courage. There's this marvelous uh, reiteration of courage all the way back from Deuteronomy 31 and to Joshua's writings. And then Joshua is going to instruct the people to be courageous. He says, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. And be strong, actually in the Hebrew, yes, strong. Is that not a good lesson for all of us today in the world we live in? Upcoming election, coronavirus, everything we could possibly imagine going on in this world, we need to be reminded, don't be afraid. Peace be with you and be strong and courageous. Good lesson for all of us. So he's prepared now to receive the vision. In verse 20, he asked Daniel a question, but doesn't give him much time to respond. Isn't that interesting? The Son of God says, I now need to return and fight against the prince of Persia. By the way, you understand how the text brings this out. Everything with warfare begins with the focal point of your life, which must be the Son of God. Are you understanding this? So Daniel needed to see the glorified Son of God before he heard about the spiritual warfare going on in this world. So, this is the the demonic power behind the empire of Persia. And then he says, not only the Persian demonic forces, but what about the ones coming in the future with Greece? How many years ahead was Daniel speaking? 200 years before the events actually take place. Again, this is the veil that is pulled down for us in Daniel chapter 10 that, again... Everything we see is not all there is to see. There's more involved going on in this world. Alexander the Great will have military might and success. But I want to remind you that it cannot be simply attributed to human ability or human achievement. But rather this passage indicates to us that there are demonic forces behind the success of the Greek Empire. Hmm. It's the second time in our passage that we've been told that there's a power behind the power. There's a conflict behind the conflict. There is a reality behind the reality. And I think there's always a danger in speculation. Yet, let's just think about the, an obvious example of spiritual warfare behind a leader. Let's think of Germany in the 1930s. Do you really think, if you've read anything about Adolf Hitler... Do you think that it's plausible that Adolf Hitler, who from every conceivable human angle was one of the most unimpressive people on the planet, this dude was a failure in a multiple, multiplicity of ways, but yet he could turn an entire society not only to be anti-Semitic, but also anti-Semitic so much that they would kill six million Jews. Don't you think for a moment that this is human success and ability? There's something behind that, folks, and it's demonically driven. Can one man have this much human ability to create a nation, to go to war itself, to the very brink of destruction? How does that happen? There's a power behind the power. There's an unseen world of darkness. Paul describes this in Ephesians 6. By the way, that's our next study, Ephesians. We're going to study the book of Ephesians. But we learn in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places, in heavenly places. And this is the perspective that Daniel gets. The curtain is dropped. In other words, Daniel sees that what uh, actually what is about to happen in the world of international politics, and it's not just about the international politics, but he sees what's happening, and then it's not just about the military maneuvering. Something is behind all of that. That's what he's reminding us of. Our problem today is we don't have a proper worldview. The Bible tells us there's an ultimate reality behind the reality. And folks, we need to understand that. You need to understand that as a member of this particular body, but also as a member of the church universally, being a saved individual. In verse 21, we're introduced to what's called the scroll of truth. 
But I will tell you what is inscribed in the scroll of truth, the book of truth. Again, I think it's clearly what's going to be revealed in chapters 11 and 12. Remember, 10 through 12 is one unit, and I think that's what's going to be revealed. Remember, the chapters and verse headings are not inspired, right? Uh, Thank the Lord for them because it helps us read, doesn't it? But chapter 11, verse 1 is the end. And this is an astonishing thing to say. He's already said that he's fighting the prince of Persia. And then he turns around and talks about the unique role in actually protecting and encouraging a king. Now, folks, what do you know about Cyrus? He's not a believer. And yet, this angel says, I'm going to give my protection to Cyrus. No doubt, this was when Cyrus was, was conquering Babylon. And as soon as God moved Cyrus to fulfill a gracious act, and what was that act? To allow the people of God to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Do you think the devil and his angels like this at all? No, folks, think about this. They will do everything they possibly can to impede the plan of God. They will even do that in your own life. Look at the verse, chapter 11, verse 1. There's a heavenly war that's been raging for these three years from the time Daniel actually received the vision. Remember, three years prior to receiving the vision, or two years prior... Darius is moved by the heart of God to let the people return. And here Daniel now is getting the vision three years later, and the temple's not rebuilt. They haven't even started. Why? Because there's massive friction. Uh, This makes a ton of sense when we think about how it's unfolded. Once Cyrus obeys, does the right thing, the intensity of the battle picks up. Now, folks, listen to me. If you're sitting on the sideline and doing nothing for God, then you're not in a battle. He could care less about you. Because you don't threaten the enemy. But when you begin to obey what God asks you to do, then Katie bar the door. The spiritual battle picks up. When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, there's incredible opposition to their returning and to their rebuilding. The biblical perspective is that this is just not taking place on the human level. There's demonic powers behind the opposition. The enemy was going against the king of Persia. He was going against the son of God. The angels of God. But the Son of God was confirming and strengthening Cyrus in the midst of the opposition. That's the glory of the Son of God. We often do not think like this. But Paul would remind everybody in this building, in the Bible, to put the full armor of God on. That you may be able to sit, uh, run. No, the scripture says that you may be able to stand in the evil day. This is how Paul speaks of that reality. And I'm telling you folks, we've been lulled to sleep in the U.S. with with comfortable American Christianity. We rarely ever think about the fact that we have an enemy. This is the reality behind the reality. We read Revelation 12 last week. What did we learn? What an incredible picture. The dragon turns to make war on the woman and to her offspring. Folks, there's a war going on. We would all rather be conscientious objectors at this point and just stay out of it. Are y'all listening? We would. I, I just object to this particular thing, and I think it'd just be better if I don't get involved. However, if you belong to God, you don't have an option. If you're a child of God, you don't have an option. Based on this teaching, we should not be ignorant of the devil and the demons and their schemes. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, Lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He has his devices. For us to be ignorant of the enemy's devices is for us to be in a vulnerable place. Do you know the verse, be angry and do not sin? Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, nor give tapas for the devil. Nor give place. You know what that word means? It means a military place of operation. Well, that's strong language for demonic activity in our lives, right? They want to set up a military operation. A place to destroy you. And there's a battle going on, according to that text, sometimes with unresolved anger. How about some of you Baptists? You got some of that? I often joked about the fact years ago that we should put a grudge detector in the back of the church. And you know, one of those things that beeps... And as you walk through, if you're angry, beep, beep. Some of you would get beeped a lot, right? So, we can't afford to neglect spiritual warfare. Think about how all this works. 
How is this applicable, applicable, even now to our church family? Well, we all want to be equipped in sharing the gospel, right? That's one example. At one level, we think, okay, evangelism training, let's do EE, CWT, uh, faith evangelism, BMW, whatever, whatever type method you've learned. However, do you understand that our battle's not against the unbeliever next door or the person you are sharing the gospel with at work? Our battle is against principalities. It's against powers. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the enemy of our souls is not pleased when we engage our culture with the truth of the gospel. Why do you think he tries to silence us? Why do you think the flesh wars against us to keep our mouths shut and not proclaim the truth of the gospel? I think the enemy prefers for Christians who profess to know Christ to always be at home, safe, sitting on their hands. Don't you think the enemy would prefer that? I want to remind you that when we pray for unbelievers, it's more than just praying for the opportunity to share. It's actually entering into spiritual warfare on behalf of souls. The fact that the enemy is standing against us. John Piper says it great. Prayer is not an intercom from which we call for more comfort in the den. Enough said, right? It's a wartime walkie-talkie from which we get our orders and resources from our heavenly headquarters. Does spiritual warfare have anything to do with your marriage? Oh, homosexuality, transgender, fornication, which is sex before marriage, uh, marital adultery. Do you think the enemy has anything to do with this, folks? Do you understand what the, the, the singular picture is of marriage? Do you understand that that is an analogy of an already existing reality? And the reality behind all of this marriage is Jesus Christ and his love for the church. Don't you open your mind and heart and think biblically. Have great thoughts about God. Why is this happening in our world? Systematically, one thing after another. Why? Because the enemy hates the Son of God. This is not a game. This is not fun and games. This is real reality. And we need to have enough perception to look behind these things with transgender. The Bible says God made man. And he made them male and female. Biologists know this. 100% identifiable. <laughs> this is obvious. And they know this in science. But yet they hide their head in the sand when we start to challenge these issues. But I'm telling you folks, it's bigger than just biology. We're talking about spirituality. We're talking about the Son of God who created all things the way He did. Does spiritual warfare have anything to do with parenting? Oh, Lord help us. If your kids turn out okay, it's all the grace of God. I'm just telling you folks. In this world we live in, it's the grace of God. We can pour into them. We can give them the word. We can do everything possible. But there's a spiritual warfare going on. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. So we know that parenting, yes. How about your work? Any spiritual warfare going on with that? Does spiritual warfare have anything to do with our nation? Does it have anything to do with American politics? And who will be the president in 2020 or 2021? Oh, my goodness, folks. What time is it? Oh, we're doing good, right? <laughs> All right, quickly. I mentioned last couple of weeks ago territorial spirits and uh, spiritual mapping this was popular years ago, and they argue that from Daniel chapter 10. And the argument goes that basically since there is a territorial demonic force behind Persia and Greece, then there must by necessity be a territorial spirit behind all nations, all cities. Now, is that a possibility? Well, we would have to say yes. The strategy, though, according to these people is that when they're assigned to these cities, that we need to deal with corporate sins of the city, and then we need to engage against these territorial spirits with warfare praying. Does that make sense? They suggest that you go into these various points of a city, you go to the four corners, and you begin to pray against those territorial spirits and other, uh, to win the victory. And so, how do we respond to this? Well, I think we've got a response in the book of Daniel, don't we? Does Daniel pray against the territorial spirit? Does he acknowledge that there is a demon behind that Persian empire? Yes. But does he pray against that territorial spirit? 
No, folks, he doesn't. Actually, what he does is reminds us in chapter 11, verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. What you do is you trust God. What you do is you stand firm. What you do is you depend upon the strength, which is the second point of the sermon, correctly. You respond with trust to Jesus Christ, who strengthens you. So I don't, I don't think the goal is to, to go internationally, nationally, regionally, and pray against the enemy of Pakistan, or the angel of Pakistan, demon of Pakistan, or against Iran. I think what we need to do is get busy as the people of God doing what we're supposed to do, and that's trust the living Christ. Do what he calls us to do. Although, I have no thought, question in my mind that there's not, not demonic force. Washington, D.C., there's got to be a ton of them. Just think about this for a moment. Fueling things. Okay, let's end this by reminding ourselves to trust Christ to sustain us and strengthen us. Now, in that realm, how do we do this? How do we engage this world knowing for... Look, this text is just as relevant today as it was when it was given to Daniel. There's still national powers. Um, we look at Pakistan and we have to say, no doubt, demonic forces. But we look at ISIS and Islam. We know this is a reality, but how do we deal with this? Well, what did Paul do when he went to Ephesus? I'm doing background work to preach through the book of Ephesians coming up. What did Paul do in Ephesus? I mean... This culture, folks, was ganked up. It was as bad as you could possibly ever imagine. With, with deities and idolatry and the temple of Artemis and all these things. What did Paul do? Paul goes straight into this darkness and idolatry. And he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. You understand, folks, in the Old Testament we make it argue that the defensive mode was they took up real weapons. But in the Word of God, according to the New Testament, our weapon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are y'all listening? The weapon we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ that breaks through. The preaching of the gospel. Actually, Luke says in Acts 19.11 that when this happened, the Word of God spread mightily. Couldn't we stand some of this in Ozark? To preach the gospel out into this community and let the Word of God spread mightily. You want to stop abuse in uh, Springfield? or abuse in Ozark, or uh, cheating and stealing, or whatever might be happening. You want to stop that? Let them get a good dose of the gospel. That will change everything. You want to break down a money-making idolatry factor, factory like the Temple of Artemis? You, you remember that text Acts says that, man, they're taking our wealth away. We can't sell our coins anymore. We can't do our witchcraft anymore. You want to get rid of gambling? Preach Jesus. Are y'all listening? It's the gospel that does this. The gospel of God is the power of God into salvation to those who believe. Speak to the one who is Lord and King over the powers of darkness. Okay, let me get through. We are in a battle against evil in this world. Y'all agree with that? This is application. When you're trusting Christ, understand this. We do not need to be convinced that there's a lot of evil in this world. Wickedness emanates from institutions and from people. And let's go ahead and put the finger where it lies, even ourselves. Evil emanates, even in the medical industry, which is the heart of mercy and healing in this world. Even the medical industry, think about this, they're perpetrators for the abortion industry. So even in that realm, we have to say, people who are even trained to be people of mercy, to heal us and help us, it's also tainted by the evil one, Right? Let's just be honest. Many indeed all other human institutions are affected by the conflict between the divine and the demonic. Let me give you a word of warning. Even in our SBC churches, we are in a constant battle to succumb to the evil around us. And we're slowly but surely slipping in to an understanding of more of, a, of habits that are not God-honoring. Even in SBC life. That's the first one. Number two, we are in a battle to win souls. When we share the gospel with someone, we're involved with what's called spiritual warfare every single time. Why? Why is this the case? Well, a careful study of the entire battle indicates that, again, evangelism has replaced 
uh, true weapons in the Old Testament that were used, physical weapons, and now our weapon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that every time you take the gospel to someone who is an unbeliever and they're lost, there's a warfare going on. Why? Because you either belong to Satan or God. Right? The scripture makes this clear. No one can have two masters. You either belong to Jesus or you belong to the devil. Now, think about this for a moment. It's not just a clash of ideas, but it is a clash of ideas with another rational human being. When you share the gospel, the good news that your sin can be forgiven and you can be redeemed, you're sharing it to someone who's on Satan's side. So there's spiritual warfare going on. If a person is not devoted to Christ, there's only one other alternative, and that's he or she is devoted to the enemy. You are either of your father, the devil, or of the heavenly father. That's the teaching of the word. So what is it? Often, I know what you think at this point, and I know you, you're Baptist, like me. Some of you are thinking, what gives me a right when I look at my own life to call anybody to the holiness of God and to be saved? Do y'all think about that sometime? Now, sometimes it's our own sin that just paralyzes us. We're so deep in our sin that we can't even share the gospel because we deal with so much guilt. But there are also others, and, and you're trying to live for the Lord, but in your heart, you're like, what gives me the right to tell anybody about the gospel of Jesus Christ because I am a rotten, good-for-nothing sinner? Here I am. I feel the same way. Go ahead and raise your hand. Point to yourself, right? Because you feel that way at some point. What is it? I want to tell you, your anointing to share the gospel doesn't come from you. Do you I want to remind you that you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. If you're saved, God has put it in you as a ministry of reconciliation to anoint you to share Jesus with people. And what is your defense? God Almighty justifies ungodly sinners like me. And if he can save me, he can save anybody. So look, don't let the enemy paralyze you. We're paralyzed in churches because of guilt. The Bible says there is therefore now no guilt to those who are in Christ Jesus. So get out and share the gospel. And don't let the enemy keep you from sharing the gospel because of guilt. Don't let him paralyze the efforts. As one old preacher said, when it comes to sharing the gospel, this is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're all beggars. We all need Jesus. Finally, we're in a battle between the new self and old self. It's a battle within ourselves, folks. Y'all get this, right? Your enemy, your old self, is a dearly loved friend, and you don't really want to kill him. Right? Let me show you. Romans. I've been so wild up here, I about knocked all my markers out. But Romans chapter 7. Listen, Listen to the scripture. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Anybody can testify? Preacher, that's me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given us the victory. We're in Christ's army now if you're saved, right? Christian growth is a battle against Satan in our hearts. Do you know that nothing can stand before God in defiance and survive? And that's why you feel like you do sometimes. Man, that war, the law of God has been placed in your heart, but yet... You've got evil in your members, and there's this war going on. And Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Right? This is a war. By the way, if that's going on in your life, that's a good thing. If there's no war going on inside of you, to love God and and to repel against sin, and to be militant toward it, and to shun the enemy, and to, to draw near to God, if that's not a desire in your heart, then you don't know the Lord. Right? Galatians 2.20. Who wins the battle? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, got it? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's always Christ's victory. It's him living through us. 2 Corinthians 10, 3. We're reminded that our weapons are not carnal, 
but are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, bringing every thought under captivity to the obedience of Christ. That one verse helped me so much in my life as a believer. And, and I'm not there. I wish it would say, the old song would say, uh, you know, sweeter as the days go by. It gets sweeter, sweeter. I wish it was easier, 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 but it's not. I used to think when I get to be 40, it'll be easier to live the Christian life. And now I'm 50, and it's not any easier, right? But that's a reminder. God, help me bring every thought under captivity to the obedience of Christ. That'll change the way that we think. We're in a battle, folks. Okay, conclusion. This passage pulls the curtain back. Underscores the importance of prayer and the purposes of God. And I'm pretty sure that when Daniel started praying, he had no idea of the massive warfare behind the curtain. And neither do we. So my encouragement to you folks is keep praying. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. He was doing what a child of God should always do. And then the the Lord God pulls back the curtain and helps Daniel see prayer in a different light. There's no such thing as futile praying. Let's pray and seek God like never before. Folks, there's a lot at stake. Your spiritual growth is at stake when it comes to spiritual warfare. Souls are at stake. We need men and women of faith that seek God in prayer for our church, for our nation, and for our own spiritual growth. To God be the glory. Great God, we thank you for your word. Lord, when you put the word in our hearts, we have to speak it as preachers of the word. And Father, as listeners, Lord, my prayer is that your word has gone forth to accomplish its purpose, which we know it will. Lord, help us to be prayerful. God, help us in our prayer life. The disciples asked the Lord Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Such an emphasis in the word of God on praying. God, help us to engage you and to remember that we have an enemy. We have an enemy that doesn't want us to pray. We have an enemy that's a hater of Christ and his church and believers. Jesus said this, if the world hated me, it will also hate you. Lord, we know what's going on, and help us to be perceptive. In our marriages, God, help us to protect marriages because it's a divine institution given to us by you, our God. You ordained marriage. You gave it. No one has a right to change it because you gave it. God, help us in our parenting to think about the enemy before us. Lord, remind us that if we feed the flesh, it's going to dominate. If we starve it, it'll die. God, help us in that fight against the enemy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you that if you'd like to speak to me about any spiritual decision you've made, any need in your life, I'll be out in the hallway to the right. I'll be so glad we don't have to do this anymore. Right? This kind of way. Uh, Love for you to come to the altar. And by the way, you can still come to the altar. Right? We're just trying to be careful. Uh, here at the church. I want to say a special thanks to all of our staff. I mean, they work hard, clean things up for the next group to come in, and uh, what a blessing they've been, our security. I want to thank James for preaching the nine last week, and I think Jeffrey's back there, him preaching the 11. Uh, That was a much-needed break for me. I think I've been grinding for about a year. I can't remember a Sunday I had been off, and now I'm going to try to go another year. No, I'm kidding. But the fact is, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be gone and uh, to bring back my daughter and grandbabies. And uh, they're tearing my house down. Uh, I joked joked with someone up front, and I said, uh, the blessing of grandchildren. Headlights coming in, taillights going out. No, just kidding, just kidding. That's just a joke. It's just a joke, right? God bless all of you. Hope you have a wonderful week. Brother David will end our service together. Let's sing these words as we go. Savior, worthy of honor and glory. Let's stand and we'll let the ushers take you out one row at a time, okay? Savior, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all our praise, you overcame Jesus and Jesus, awesome and week.